Hub and Spoke Audio Collective. Hey there, iconographers. Remember this? Coming through. Hi ho, Kermit the Frog here as Washington crossing the Delaware, announcing the new 50 state quarters from the United States Mint. Special effects. It was 1999, a year when the U.S. was afflicted with a need to catch them all. Them being all the first-generation Pokemon available on your Game Boy, all the Pokemon trading cards, all the Pokemon Burger King Happy Meal toys, which was no easy feat, I can tell you. That year, uh, the U.S. Mint came up with a similarly addictive collecting craze that the whole family could play along with. The State Quarters. There'll be a new quarter about every ten weeks. Are we there yet? 50 state quarters from the United States Mint, the most exciting change America's ever seen. As with Pokemon, not everyone stuck it out after the first year or two and actually uh, caught them all, all 50 state quarters that were drip-fed out to the public between 1999 and 2008. I certainly didn't, and I suspect many people had a similar experience. In 1999, at our house, we got one of the maps with 50 slots, and for the original colonies, finding state quarters was a fun family pastime. And then apparently we found other fun family pastimes, because I'm looking at the back of the quarter designs from, like, the year 2004. There's, like, a cow? A schoolhouse? And they are a mystery to me. And my own home state, Florida, came out that year. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I think... A lot of us probably got swept up in the state quarter mania, but the mania was not built to carry us through a full decade. What I'm saying is, I would be willing to wager there are a lot of state quarters maps sitting in attics and in basements that don't have any quarters west of the Mississippi River. What I'm also saying is that people probably spent a lot more time getting familiar with the first 10 or 15 state quarters than they did with the last 10 or 15 quarters. Sorry, Alaska. Which brings me to New Hampshire. New Hampshire lucked into a pretty sweet deal. As an original colony, it got a plum spot on the year 2000 roster when everyone was still paying attention. And when it came to what to put on the quarter, which for many states I'm sure involved a lot of bickering about birds and flowers and other stuff, the decision was blessedly easy. Quarters work great with profiles of faces. I mean, this is a known thing. And boy, did New Hampshire have a profile. The profile, in fact. A 40-foot-tall, physics-defying profile of a man made of rock hanging 1,200 feet up on the cliff of Cannon Mountain. And also hanging from the bumpers of most of the cars in the state, as well as in silhouette form, on every state route highway sign. It was kismet. I mean, a state quarter with two heads. Heads or heads? George Washington's or the Old Man of the Mountains? an image I would vividly remember decades later when all the other state quarters had faded from memory. This story doesn't exactly have a happy ending. Not long after the release of the New Hampshire State Quarter, in 2003, physics finally won its battle with the old man of the mountain, and he came crashing down, leaving the quarters and the license plates and the road signs as his legacy. Which leaves us with this question. How does a group of people hold on to an icon when, well when that icon can no longer be held. Fortunately, this episode, I found someone who wears the New Hampshire State Quarter as a necklace to help me answer that question. Oh, is that the State Quarter? Yep. I love that. Yep. (laughs) And it's just, you've like, cut out the the part that's that's so cool. Yep. Cut out the part that isn't the old man, so the old man would show. Also, his watch face (laughs) is the New Hampshire State Quarter.
It's really <laughs> beautiful. The uh, U.S. Mint made 25 of them. Of the watches? Yeah, the watches. Oh. And uh, I have two. <laughs> when the battery goes on this one, I bring out the other one. That's right. We've been saving it. Yeah. The U.S. Mint made 25 New Hampshire State Quarter watches. Perfect. And Dick Hamilton owns two of them. I think we're in pretty good hands here. This is Iconography, and I'm Charles Gustine, your guide on this tour of icons, real and imagined. A great tour needs a great tour guide. And eh, I'm just okay. At least for this episode. I never saw the old man of the mountain up on Cannon Mountain in all its glory. I, I did my due diligence. I made my way up to Franconia Notch State Park, a straight shot up I-93 from Boston. Old man historical site to the right. And I walked down the trail to where the old man of the mountain had been visible until its fall in 2003. Up ahead there's a sign that says, why is it called a notch? And I have been wondering that. I and I had moseyed around Profiler Plaza, read the plaques. Home using a simple axe. Trees were felled by making newer V-shaped cuts called notches in the tree's base. Settlers applied the term notch to narrow passages through the mountains since these were also often U or V-shaped. And used the plaza's namesake profilers to line myself up just right. Ah, I see. I'm a sloucher. I have to not slouch. And return the old man to his perch. There it is. More on that later. But it would be tough with that limited exposure for me to speak to what the old man had meant to Granite Staters. What he continues to mean to the people of New Hampshire today, I was going to need some help. Fortunately, help came to me. One afternoon, I was sitting at work, not podcast work, but software work, minding my own business when my phone rings. Caller ID New Hampshire, so I pick it up, and after introducing myself, I hear, Hello, this is the old man of the mountain. I hear you've been wanting to talk with me. Which is true. I had been wanting to talk with him. <laughs> Don't worry. This is not going to be another monologue from the point of view of an inanimate slab of granite. How much of a hack would I be to try that two times in a row? So what are you interviewing Mr. Hamilton for? I am interviewing him for a podcast that I make. Oh, a right. history podcast called Iconography. Oh, cool. Yes. Okay, that's neat. Yeah. So I just did a bunch of episodes on Plymouth and uh -huh. like Plymouth Rock and the Mayflower right. and Mayflower 2. And now I'm going to do uh, The Old Man of the Mountain. Yeah, great. And it's this him. old man of the mountain. <laughs> he called me on the phone. He's like, This is the old man of the mountain. I hear you've been wanting to speak with me. <laughs> and I didn't know which one. Yeah. <laughs> And I was like, it's it's him. It's it is him. He's calling me. <laughs> so let's back up a little bit and just yep. like tell me who you are and kind of what your history is with this park and with the okay. old man. I'm uh, Dick Hamilton. I'm the curator of the Old Man Museum and uh, Legacy Fund, and also vice president of the group of volunteers that have been working on the old man for the last 40 years, 50 years. I'm, I'm retired now, I'm 83, and my love is of the old man because I've been involved with him since 1958. <laughs> That's 40, oh, 51 years? Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> He got. <laughs> and um, 
I like to go down to the shore of the lake or come in here in the, inside the museum and just talk to folks uh, who come, come by. I meet the Camelton in the Old Man of the Mountain Museum. It's a fairly compact room next to the gift shop in a squat building at the head of the trail that leads down to Profile Lake, famous for its view of the profile on the mountain. What the museum lacks in size, it makes up for in volume. Dick and I spend a good deal of our time together with me pointing at some small item with the old man's profile on it going, what's that? And him explaining that to me. Uh, those look like coins. Those were turnpike toll oh. coins in New Hampshire for the first 50 years of the uh, highway system. Back before Easy Pass. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. we barely even scratched the surface in the two hours I'm there. And there he is. He's everywhere. <laughs> We're surrounded by depictions of the old man in silhouette. The furrowed brow, squat nose, mouth slightly agape, and pronounced boxy chin. He's on toll tokens and milk bottles, china plates and World War I medals. So clearly, wholly, uncompromisingly a man's face and profile that it's led to a common misconception about the cliff, which Dick points out, referencing a poster on the wall that shows what happened when the old man came down in 2003. A lot of people think it's it's a solid stone that it was carved in, like, South Dakota. And uh, we say, no, 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 it's all natural. And uh, this piece here shows you that uh, how many rocks actually it was made of. And there were five layers of rock on it. These, you see the chin, the upper lip, the nose, the top of the head, and the forehead. According to the geologists, it wasn't there. They said, they said there's no way that it could be there. Like the, that it could be hanging up like yeah, that? Yeah. Because it's just so much pressure. And, and so much weight. And it was almost 800 tons uh, of rock that came down uh, in it. Uh, and it, and in, uh, there were two young men. That no, let's not do that yet. Let's not bring the old man crashing down. Someday in the future, actually in the year 2202, uh, if you manage to hang around that long, he'll have been gone for longer than he was with us. 198 years of knowing he was there and being able to visit him. But for now, we live in a space and time where he was around much longer than he was gone. I want to revisit that time. So let's put him back up. If only for this podcast where the budgetary concerns don't matter. And let's explore his life as we saw it piece by piece, in five pieces. Piece one, the nose. The first people we know of to see the face of a man on the side of Cannon Mountain in Franconia Notch were surveyors, people whose job it was to observe the world around them and line up angles just so. I love this detail, because it means that from the very beginning, the old man of the mountain wasn't just a stony face 1,200 feet up. He was a puzzle, a game, a game of chance, of patience, of timing, and triangulation. You couldn't be just anywhere in the notch and go, hey, does that cliff over there have a nose? It's not like there was an actual human face hanging off Cannon Mountain, no. Now, the magical thing about the profile is that you had to be standing in the right place to see anything that resembled a face and profile, about 200 feet out from a point on Profile Lake. 
stand within the right radius, and there was no mistaking the face of a wizened old man. Stand outside the radius, and you didn't see a nose and lips and a forehead. You just saw a jumble of interesting rocks. The first people to stand in the right place and look up saw the face of their president. Two Franconia citizens who were building a pathway through the notch. They had camped on the shore of the lake the night before and got up in the morning and looked up and said, Ooh, uh, President uh, Jefferson. Jefferson was president at the time. They, they thought it looked like uh, Jefferson. Who knows precisely how long the old man was up there looking somewhat like Thomas Jefferson, but also looking like every other older gentleman with a severe brow and pronounced chin, before Francis Whitcomb and Luke Brooks came along in 1805. At least, that's what I thought before arriving at the museum and chatting with Dick. That this face was ageless. That it had once kissed the side of a receding glacier in a long-ago age and had hidden, secluded in a valley for centuries, waiting until Jefferson's presidency to be discovered. But in the corner of the museum, under the poster that showed what happened to the five pieces of the old man in 2003, there is, I kid you not, a headstone. It reads, In loving memory of the old man of the mountain, created circa 1650 to 1700, discovered 1805, crumbled May 3rd, 2003, loving son of the White Mountains of New Hampshire. On this, on this gravestone here, you know, it says you know, created circa 1650. Yeah. Where do we get the notion that that's... Well, of, that's of the geologists uh, speak of, of that. You know, some of the literature says, oh, a thousand years. And they say, no, not really. But by the looks of the stones down on the talus slope and the size of the stones that they measured and drilled here, that they think... The 1600s is probably a good, good time. The granite pieces that came together to form the Old Man of the Mountain were millions of years old. Cannon Mountain is tens of thousands of years old. But eventually, after a long-held belief that the old man had stared out from his perch since time immemorial, the evidence seemed to say that he actually hadn't settled into that famous facial form until the 17th century, if not later. Which might explain why no one, as far as we know, had seen the profile before Francis Whitcomb and Luke Brooks surveying their road in 1805. It's not like this was uninhabited or unexplored territory. It's entirely possible that people had passed by Cannon Mountain before then, looked up, and saw a dramatic, if not particularly evocative, cliff. A cliff, after all, is just a cliff, until it has a nose. Through whatever combination of elusiveness and erosion, 1805 was the first time anyone known to history looked up Cannon Mountain Way and thought, my God, that cliff has a nose. And that's what the profile was for a while. A cliff with a nose. A local curiosity at best. Geological formations that look like things that aren't geological formations, like people or other animals and stuff like that, aren't that uncommon. I don't want to say they're a dime a dozen, but I would say they're whatever a bit less frequent than a dime is in this context. I don't actually really understand this coinage, if you will. Uh, a nickel a dozen? Should I go the other way? A, a quarter a dozen? Okay, that seems appropriate. I'm going to go that way. Uh, they're a quarter a dozen. Uh, one side I found lists 14 other mimeoliths, meaning roughly imitation stones, in the state of New Hampshire, including the duck's head and the sleeping astronomer. But you don't see them appearing on official U.S. currency. 
the old man of the mountain clearly went on a different journey. The face in the mountain needed some help to become iconic. Every legend needs its bard, and the great stone face met his bard in 1832. Piece 2. The Lip Twenty-seven years after surveyors put the old man of the mountain on the map, he was paid a visit by a young writer of absolutely no renown. This isn't the first time we're encountering Nathaniel Hawthorne, author of The Scarlet Letter, on iconography, and it certainly won't be the last. He kind of comes with the territory, the territory being New England. But I think it will be the earliest we encounter him. In September 1832, 28 years old, with only an obscure novel and a handful of short stories to his name, and uh, actually, since some of those were put out anonymously, not even really to his name. This Hawthorne, spending the end of his summer traipsing about the White Mountains, climbing to the summit of Mount Washington in a snowstorm and visiting Franconia Notch and all the time observing, was almost two decades away from his own personal summit. And it's actually in the midst of that meteoric rise to fame in 1850, the same year The Scarlet Letter was published, that the story we're most concerned with for the purposes of this episode was unveiled. One afternoon, when the sun was going down, a mother and her little boy sat at the door of their cottage, talking about the great stone face. They had but to lift their eyes, and there it was, plainly to be seen, though miles away, with the sunshine brightening all its features. And what was the great stone face? One paragraph later, the answer comes, and it's clear that while the valley in this story isn't quite Franconia Notch, and the profile on the mountain isn't quite the old man of the mountain, which was only 40 feet high from head to chin and could not be seen from miles away, Hawthorne's adventures in the White Mountains as a young man left quite a lasting impression on him. Hawthorne describes the great stone face as a work of nature in her mood of majestic playfulness formed on the perpendicular side of a mountain by some immense rocks, which had been thrown together in such a position as, when viewed at a proper distance, precisely to resemble the features of the human countenance. It seemed as if an enormous giant, or a titan, had sculptured his own likeness on the precipice. There was the broad arch of the forehead, a hundred feet in height, the nose with its long bridge, and the vast lips, which, if they could have spoken, would have rolled their thunder accents from one end of the valley to the other. True it is that if the spectator approached too near, he lost the outline of the gigantic visage, and could discern only a heap of ponderous and gigantic rocks, piled in chaotic ruin upon one another. Retracing his steps, however, the wondrous features would again be seen, and the farther he withdrew from them, the more like a human face, with all its original divinity intact, did they appear, until, as it grew dim in the distance, with the clouds and glorified vapor of the mountains clustering about it, the great stone face seemed positively to be alive. And in Hawthorne's interpretation of Franconia, the stone face pretty much is alive, or actually he's larger than life larger than his inspiration in the real world by orders of magnitude. And so Hawthorne helped transform the old man of the mountain from an intriguing attraction into a meaningful symbol, making it larger by orders of magnitude. To understand what changed when Hawthorne published The Great Stone Face, 
It'll help to see how Hawthorne's contemporaries were writing about the face on the mountain. In 1827, Martin Field, a lawyer from Vermont, wrote into Professor Silliman of the American Journal of Sciences and Arts. In the letter, Field writes about his 1827 visit to Profile Mountain, which has long been considered a rare phenomenon. A side view of the projecting rock near the peak of the mountain in a northern direction exhibits the profile of the human face, in which every line and feature are conspicuous. Along with the letter, Mr. Field enclosed a sketch of the mountain, and he entreats Mr. Silliman, If it meets your approbation, you will please to insert it in the Journal of Science. Mr. Silliman obliged in 1828, and the world was treated to its first written account of the profile on the mountain in Franconia Notch. It was dry, clinical, and also kind of sweet. I assume most submissions to the journal in the 1820s were this exceedingly polite, but it's still very charming to read Martin Field ask if Professor Silliman likes his sketch. Whatever the case, it's just a few years until Hawthorne's visit, and we're hardly seeing the kind of fervor that's going to land the old man of the mountain a spot on U.S. currency. Now, to see an example of that, we're going to head on down the trail from the museum to about the same spot on Profile Lake that Martin Field stood in 1827. There, on the shore of the lake, as you face the mountain, there's a short brown sign with probably the most famous thing that anyone ever said about the old man of the mountain, painted on it in thick, white, Comic Sans-like letters. Men hang out their signs indicative of their respective trades. Shoemakers hang out a gigantic shoe, jewelers a monster watch, and a dentist hangs out a gold tooth. But up in the mountains of New Hampshire, God Almighty has hung out a sign to show that there he makes an... The short answer regarding who said this very striking, very beautiful thing is right there on the sign. Daniel Webster, the great New Hampshire statesman and orator who held court in Washington, D.C. from 1813 until his death in 1852. The long answer is a rant about footnoting or a lack thereof that I'll spare you from, but suffice it to say that this appears to be one of those things that a great man wrote not into a book or a speech, but into the stars, where it became as visible as a constellation and also as hard to put one's finger on. For all my efforts, I don't know when he said it, or where, or in what context, so frankly, I don't know if he said it. But let's play along and say, okay, Daniel Webster said this, because it really is a very nice quote, and the world is much more fun if he actually did write this. My issue with this sentiment, if I had to find one, is that saying God Almighty has hung out a sign in New Hampshire to show that he makes men there says a whole lot about New Hampshire and not a whole lot about the old man of the mountain, which is reduced to the equivalent of God's billboard. And it actually, can I confess, it doesn't say a whole lot about New Hampshire either if you think about it, if you like break it down. Like, he only makes men in New Hampshire? Is that what? He makes the best men there? He makes women elsewhere? It kind of breaks down sorry, Daniel Webster, if this even is you. <laughs> Point being, a certain something had been missing from the old man of the mountain before Hawthorne came into the picture. Every mimeolith, no matter what it looks like, kind of does seem like God made manifest on earth. Hawthorne gave the old man something else, an inner life, a moral code even. Hawthorne's story, The Great Stone Face, is about a young boy named Ernest who lives in a bucolic valley with a long, unrealized prophecy. Someone born in the valley was destined to become the greatest and noblest personage of his time, and whose countenance in manhood should bear an exact resemblance to the great stone face. 
Upon hearing about the prophecy for the first time from his mother, little Ernest cries, Oh, mother, dear mother, I do hope that I shall live to see him. Would it surprise you, dear listener, one bit to learn that Ernest spends his whole life waiting to meet this great man with the face of the great stone face, and suffers many disappointments only to be told as an old man that he is in fact the spitting image of the great stone face? No, that wouldn't, that wouldn't surprise you? Okay, good. well, congratulations, you've heard stories before. The face of Ernest assumed a grandeur of expression, so imbued with benevolence, that the poet, by an irresistible impulse, threw his arms aloft and shouted, Behold! Behold! Ernest is himself the likeness of the great stone face! Then all the people looked and saw that what the poet said was true. The prophecy was fulfilled. The poet in this story, by the way, is so obviously Hawthorne, it's not even funny. He's the last, but also the humblest in a cycle of false messiahs, if you will. People who return to this valley after finding fame and glory elsewhere, raising Ernest and others' hopes that with their return, the prophecy has been fulfilled. Each example in the parade of letdowns teaches us a lesson about what the great stone face doesn't represent. First a greedy old miser with yellowing skin, then a stoic military leader known as Old Blood and Thunder, and finally Old Stony Fizz, a grandiloquent statesman modeled after Daniel Webster himself. In each case, Ernest joins a crowd of onlookers, and as everyone falls over themselves to pronounce that the returning hero looks just like the face on the mountain, Ernest, who spends all his spare time looking at the stone face and thinking about the kind of man he promises, is immediately disappointed. Old Stony Fizz, the politician, holds the most promise, and for a moment Ernest kind of does fancy a resemblance. But the sublimity and stateliness, the grand expression of a divine sympathy that illuminated the mountain visage and etherealized its ponderous granite substance into spirit, might here be sought in vain. Ernest's neighbor elbows him. Confess, confess, is not he the very picture of your old man of the mountain? And Ernest, seeing a man of mighty faculties and little aims, whose life with all its high performances was vague and empty, says, No, I see little or no likeness. Not for the first time in the story, Ernest looks up pleadingly at the mountain, wondering if he'll live to see the prophecy fulfilled, and the old man of the mountain seems to speak to him, or maybe through him. Lo, here I am, Ernest, the benign lips seem to say. I have waited longer than thou, and am not yet weary. Fear not, the man will come. And he does. Ernest just has to get old enough to become the mountain's spitting image. By that point, Ernest has become famous in his own right, as a preacher, a man of the people. But notably, instead of leaving the valley to become famous, uh, people come to the valley to see him. One such visitor is Hawthorne. I mean the poet, who admits to the aged Ernest, You must add my name to the illustrious three and record another failure of your hopes. For, in shame and sadness do I speak it, I am not worthy to be typified by yonder benign and majestic image. And what makes him unworthy? I have had grand dreams, but they have only been dreams, because I have lived, and that too by my own choice, among poor and mean realities. Sometimes even, shall I dare to say it, I lack faith in the grandeur and 
the beauty and the goodness which my own works are said to have made more evident in nature and in human life. If Hawthorne had constructed an entire parable to essentially confess that he felt a sense of emptiness in his writing and a sense of surprise when other people missed that emptiness, well, it it didn't work. <laughs> uh, because the story did for the old man of the mountain exactly what the poet lamented. It made the grandeur, the beauty, and the goodness of the natural phenomenon more evident. And it did this by personifying the granite profile as a specific type of person. Salt of the earth, humble, unwavering, a granite stater through and through. The kind of person who, when hailed by a crowd as their prophesied hero, reacts like this. Ernest, having finished what he had to say, took the poet's arm and walked slowly homeward, still hoping that some wiser and better man than himself would by and by appear, bearing a resemblance to the great stone face. With Hawthorne's template set, the old man began to act as a beacon for exactly those kinds of people. Which is a good thing, because it turned out the old man would need exactly those kinds of people to hold it up. I'm sorry, is it cliché of me to segue from Ernest and the Great Stone Face back to Dick Hamilton by essentially calling him a real-life Ernest? It is, isn't it? Yeah. I'm I'm slotting us right into the roles that Hawthorne assigned us. Uh, me, the poet, afraid I can't do my subject justice. Dick, the Hubble Granite State lifer. Me pointing up at him and going, my God, it's him. Whatever, I'm, I'm doing it anyway. I think I'm in the clear here. Dick does, you'll recall, call himself the old man of the mountain after all. Piece three, the forehead. There's a plaque near the entrance of the Old Man of the Mountain Museum and the neighboring gift shop, a means of honoring people who've been great friends with the old man through the years. It's one of those plaques that has a bunch of engraved names on it with space for more. At one point during our interview, a visitor ambles up wanting to know if Dick is on the plaque. She's seen his face on a nearby poster, but it doesn't have his name under the picture. No, we remain pretty much anonymous. Yeah five of us that are basically uh, responsible for what you saw down there. Thank you. Yeah. But it's, it's on there. We point her oh, to the right plaque, here. which Dick the, did uh, consent uh, to be added to. Right there. She picks out the name at the top <laughs> left. Dick is at the bottom right, not because of a lack of importance, but because he's late to the party. The last in a line of people who've watched over and tended to the profile. People like Guy Roberts, Edward Geddes, and the Nielsen family. Keeping the face fixed to the mountain with steel and epoxy and fiberglass, and keeping a constant eye on it. Reverend Guy Roberts is often credited with being the first to notice that the old man was in danger of keeling over back in 1906, but the precarious state of the profile had actually been common knowledge since 1872. That's when members of the Appalachian Mountain Club looked down at the forehead stone and saw that it was coming away from the cliff. The whole thing was already teetering precariously, balancing on the chin stone, which was resting on a small stone Adam's apple, the pressure from the stones above holding the whole thing in place. But for how long? One traveler's handbook from 1891 states matter-of-factly, There is a probability that it may not last for many years longer on account of the rapid decomposition of the granite, which crumbles under the hand. Professor Hitchcock says, 
I would advise any persons who are anxious to see the profile for themselves to hasten to the spot for fear of disappointment. So, people at the turn of the 20th century were already entreating each other to go see the old man of the mountain now before he fell. Reverend Roberts was simply the first person to do something about it, telling the mountain's then-owners that preventative measures were needed urgently. When they first discovered that there was movement of rock, they discovered that the forage stone had actually slipped four inches. Then the old man was owned by the Baron Hotel Company. Because it was on their property. It was part of their 6,000 acres. And they said, well, we've got to preserve it. And that's when they came up with a guy named Edward Geddes. He was a rock mason from Quincy, Mass. He came up and took it on on himself to raise money over uh, for it. He hired a bunch of high school students to hike up to the top. Of course, you had to walk up. There was no tramway then. With supplies, all the high school kids quit that day or the day after because it was in, it was in the fall and it was nasty weather and Geddes uh, stayed with it and, and finished the job in October of that year. Dick leafs through an album filled with pictures of Geddes and others on top of or hanging from the side of the face 1400 feet above the ground doing all sorts of things to staunch the old man's wounds. Even looking at pictures of Gettys and others tethered to the side of the mountain with ropes, I'm getting vertigo. This, I mean, this is not an this is not an easy, fun job keeping no. this thing up. You're hanging off a, a oh. cliff face. Oh yeah, yeah. One step the wrong way, and yeah. oh, <laughs> can you imagine doing that today? OSHA would say, oh, oh, oh. Because they weren't actually down over the face, tethered like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Niels Nielsen, when he, when he did it, uh, was he had a bosun's chair. Mm-hmm. During his long tenure as caretaker of the face, Nielsen would sit in a tiny chair while anchored to the mountain with a 5 16 inch steel cable. Which is better, certainly. More OSHA compliant, but... I mean, that's the crazy thing with, like, even if in this chair, like, you're sitting under a thing that you're literally working on because you yeah. know yeah. it could go... <laughs> it could go any minute. Yeah. There was an element of bravery in going over the side and messing about with the granite, but it was a job that needed doing. Over the years, beginning with Gettys, the old man became the site of a nearly constant vigil, with precise measurements recorded and with corrective action taken whenever the face seemed to be losing its grip. These efforts included using fiberglass, epoxy, mortar, staples, and, most famously, turnbuckles. The particularly handy among you, the ones who enjoy visits to Home Depot and have a dream board of DIY projects, might know what turnbuckles are already. Uh, But for those of you who are more like me... Turnbuckles are a trusty way of adjusting the tension in ropes and cables. They're the things that keep the ropes around a wrestling ring nice and taut. The turnbuckles on Cannon Mountain were substantially larger than the screws on a wrestling ring. These were hulking steel joints anchored to the granite with U-bolts meant to be adjusted with changes in temperature. The old man heaves and sighs with changes in temperature, Niels Nielsen, the old man's caretaker for multiple decades, once told a reporter for Yankee Magazine. The forehead rocks back and forth, 
The turnbuckles act as hinges, so he has a little bit of space to move, but not a lot. Nielsen, a bridge maintenance and construction supervisor from Brooklyn, began applying his knowledge and time to the old man in the mid-60s. By that point, the old man had become the property of the state, thanks to organizations like the New Hampshire Federation of Women's Clubs and the Society for the Protection of New Hampshire Forests, who raised $400,000 in the late 20s in order to keep Franconia Notch out of the hands of the lumber industry and ensure it became a state reservation. The old man had also been adopted as the official state emblem of New Hampshire in 1945. For decades, it had been a popular silhouette to put on, well, uh, just about everything, from china to jewelry boxes, as the memorabilia around Dick and I in the museum attests, but now the state was formally invested in it. The old man had become so powerful, he'd even bent the interstate highway system to his will. People would, before the interstate went in, when it was just a regular road, they'd just stop and pull over the side of the road and and look at him and say, get out and walk around, and they could walk down to the shore of the lake. Uh, and we figured there's somewhere in the vicinity of two million every year that go by it and, and look up. Dick pulls out a picture from before Route 93 went in in the 50s, and indeed, there are just cars parked on both sides of this road, people outside, necks craned toward the mountain, as one sucker tries to make their way slowly through the scene. You don't see that anymore now that I-93 winds its way through the notch, but it isn't your typical highway either. It's the only interstate, incidentally, that is one lane in each direction, in for about three miles of 52,000 miles of interstate highway, and that's all because of the, this guy. <laughs> At the time. Guy, yeah. Yeah. And yet, for all of that, there was always a persistent fear that any day might be the old man's last. Dick Hamilton never had any pretensions that what they were doing would keep the old man up forever. As a matter of fact, his relationship with the Great Stone Face began when he stopped at the highway to see the aftermath of another rock slide in the 50s which may as well have been the old man saying, Love me, but don't love me too hard. Gravity will come for me someday. There was a rock slide off Mount Lafayette, across the way, that came down and covered the road 20 feet in debris. Uh, route, it was just Route 3 at the time. Uh, and it took them uh, four days to clear it out to the point where they could use the road again. And I came over to see that and photograph it, and that was the beginning of uh, my love affair, I guess, with the old man. Dick points me to another picture on the wall, from the 70s, of rocks and debris at the foot of the mountain. When this occurred, we knew that uh, the old man was next. You can see the, the old man is right there. So what is this? This was a rock slide about 200 feet down the cliff. So it was always a bit of a ticking clock. Oh, yeah, yeah. We knew that it was going to come down. Hopefully what we were doing to seal the cracks and so forth might keep it there another few years, but, uh, you know, maybe to our grandchildren. But. But. But they were applying bandages to a mortal wound. There was always an aspect of old man worship, going all the way back to 1872, before any of the stuff in this museum was even made, that was tinged with fatalism. 
I mean, he was known as the old man, for Christ's sakes. It's what he looked like, but it's also what he felt like. Part of loving him was wondering when age would finally catch up with him. And for the people who truly loved him, whose lives and livelihoods revolved around him, there was that sense of the inevitable, which you'd think would make it harder to cherish an icon. But that didn't seem to be the case. The old man's more than a pile of rocks to me, Niels Nielsen once said in a profile in New England magazine, which followed him on one of his many excursions up the mountain and then over the side. He is a live thing. I can feel him pulsate when I'm over the side. There's an entire corner of the museum dedicated to articles about Nielsen. Against the window, through which you can see the gift shop, newspaper and magazine profiles from across the years chronicle Nielsen's decades-long career as the old man's caretaker. Well, I, I say career, but in fact, for most of his life, hanging off the side of the cliff face, clearing away weeds, taking measurements, waterproofing and applying epoxy was something he did in his spare time, for no money, an off-hours hobby from his day job working for the State Highway Department. And what a hobby it was. It essentially became a family business, just, you know, without the money. It was something he did with his son David, with his daughter-in-law Debbie, even with his grandson Tommy. And then there was a member of the extended family who was always there with Niels, rain or shine. I think of him as part of the family, an uncle or grandfather, he says of the old man in one of the articles up on the wall, where he mentions that he talks to the old man to see if he's going to be cooperative. I say hi to him. He's moody. <laughs> sometimes he doesn't say anything, and sometimes he says, You can go over the side. If you don't pinch, I won't sneeze. In that same article in People magazine, you learn that Niels decorated his home with pictures of the old man, that he would do up to 75 lectures at schools and civic groups in a year for free, that his license plate was old man. <laughs> Niels was formally recognized as the official caretaker of the stone face in 1987, after decades of doing it in an unofficial capacity. He handed over caretakership to his son David four years later in 1991. When Niels passed away a decade later, David put his father's ashes in the old man's left eye. Honestly, Hawthorne couldn't have written it better. And as we heard, he tried. Dick Hamilton, like Niels Nielsen, has essentially become synonymous with the granite formation he loves. Dick led the White Mountains Attractions Association for 35 years and has dedicated most of his life to raising awareness of the wonders of Franconia Notch. The award they give to contributors to the state's tourism industry is called the Dick Hamilton Lifetime Achievement Award. As such, Dick has a special and long-standing relationship with the old man of the mountain that goes well beyond answering the phone as him. I had a, uh, uh, a habit. I lived in Littleton, which is 10 miles from here, and my office was in the visitor center down at North Woodstock that we built in 1976, uh, so I had to commute through the notch every day. And my habit was, because I was promoting attractions, that was my job, uh, the old man was the number one attraction, by far, from all the others. Uh, so I would go by at night and on my way home and just say, good night, boss whether I could see him or not, you know. He was in charge. Yeah, he was the boss. <laughs> um, and that, uh, that caught on uh, for, with uh, some of the media people. that They thought that was kind of neat. So I still say goodnight, boss, yeah. when I go by. 
Yes, we had to end up here. We held it off for as long as we could, but it is time to revisit the day the media rushed to Franconia Notch to talk to Dick Hamilton. That day in 2003, that two years shy of the 200th anniversary of his discovery, the old man came tumbling down. Piece four, the chin. The uh, old man came down on May 3rd in a snowstorm. The chin was the first piece to go. You think this is the key? That's the Adam's apple. And we had done nothing down there to secure that. And that was on the list, on the to-do list, because it was underneath the whole damn thing. Uh, it was, there was a, a reluctance to go down there yeah. and do it. Our theory was that if we seal all the cracks, then maybe he'll, uh, he'll last a little bit longer uh, because it was really ice that uh, finished him off. Uh, it was a, that night, uh, it, was a, uh, it had been raining for three days, very heavy rain and very high winds. So we theorized that the wind was driving the rain into the cracks of the, uh, of the old man, and then it turned uh, cold. And temperature dropped to uh, 30 degrees, and it turned to ice. And of course, ice is stronger than steel and, and, uh, and rock. And it just expanded enough to pop it, and away it went. <laughs> Down it came. Gravity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It was almost 800 tons uh, of rock that came down uh, in it, uh, and, it, and it, there were two young men that were camping at the south side of the lake, and they, uh, they heard it in the middle of the night. They didn't know what it was. They heard two crashes. Uh, so we theorized the first crash was all of this, all the way up to here. And the turnbuckles held the top of the head and the forehead for three or four seconds longer than it went. My secretary and a friend of hers were coming through the notch. They'd been down south of it. And they looked up and said, oh, Houston, we had a problem. And I got a phone call. And my secretary said, the old man's gone. What do you mean? I said, what do you mean the old man's gone? He says, the profile is gone. It's gone. It's collapsed. I said, holy. Something. Mm-hmm. I think I made the 11 miles in about seven minutes. <laughs> uh, and I got there and I just we pulled into the northbound parking lot I violated all the rules <laughs> and uh, and I looked up and I said oh my god what are we going to do and now we've lost 
our signature, if you will. Uh, and I called a friend of mine in Concord who uh, runs a helicopter business, and I said, I need a chopper. And she said, what for? And I said, the old man is falling. He said, whack! And he said, I'll be there in 45 minutes, and he was. Uh, and he landed here, and we took media only in the helicopter up to see where the site of, of it was so they could get their own impression of it. And uh, uh, at, by 1.30 that day, there were seven satellite trucks sitting in that northbound uh, parking lot and two, uh, two radio people. And, uh, several stations interrupted their broadcast to announce it at uh, two o'clock that day. So it, got, it got a great, great deal of coverage. So people in Texas heard about the old man collapse before people in Franconia who didn't have their radio TV on. And that was one of the worst days of my life, I guess. Although, I, I went at it on the basis of greeting all the press who came and, and talked to them about the collapse and did they want to ride the helicopter up and take a look. And yeah, 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 yeah. And then that night, I think the, it kind of hit me and I said, holy mackerel, he's the number one tourist attraction in the White Mountains and he's gone. What are we gonna do? Piece five, The Brow. To answer that question, not just what are we going to do, but what can we do? New Hampshire Governor Craig Benson assembled a task force. And there were 11 members of the task force. I was one of them. Uh, we met on several, several, several times in May and June of that year, and when we got done, our recommendation was to, uh, to the governor was not to build anything on the mountain, that it was too unstable and too expensive and just wouldn't be appropriate. And uh, we had a vote, and it was 10 to 1 that we not do it. Only one person really wanted to see a fiberglass thing up there. And I said, you know, we, we've recorded winds up there over 100. So <laughs> what, whatever you put up there wouldn't stay there. It would end up in Franconia. <laughs> uh, With that decided, there would be nothing attached to the mountain where the face had once been the state of New Hampshire basically bowed out of whatever would come next, which is how the Old Man of the Mountain Legacy Fund came to be. We decided that we needed to do something down at the lakefront in order to get people to understand what happened up on the cliff. What we're doing at the site uh, is all being done by private enterprise. The state of New Hampshire uh, is not contributing a penny and the legislature said, 
in effect, well, people are going to forget. And uh, we said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and I think we're right. And they're wrong. <laughs> Profiler Plaza, at the end of the trail that leads from the museum to Profile Lake, is a testament to that. My visit is a testament to that, as are the visits of everyone I saw there. I'm making sure to go out of their way to visit the place where an incredible thing used to be. Which in a way makes the plaza its own incredible thing. And I wanted to be sure to tell its story as much as I wanted to tell the story of the old man. The Legacy Fund held a nationwide contest in 2007 to see if they could find any ideas out there that could do the old man of the mountain justice without being, you know, on the mountain. We had a nationwide contest, and we had all these uh, entries, 36 entries from around the country and, and Canada. Uh, and most of them were self-promoting. And uh, we had a, in October of that year, we had a meeting down at the site, and we knocked it down to three. That we thought, well, maybe these, one of these three would, would be good. And uh, we, we uh, interviewed them. We gave them $1,000 each and said, make a model of what you want to do. One of those three submissions came from sculptor Shelley Bradbury and toy designer Ron Majors of Essex, Massachusetts. And uh, they came in with a cardboard on plywood model of what they wanted to do. It was a scale model of the end of the trail with a series of granite sculptures leading up to the lake, which, taken on their own, looked abstract. But if you stood at the right spot, you'd see that they actually formed the old man's profile. And then, down at the lake itself, right where you would have stood to see the actual profile up on the mountain, there were six rods, each with some abstract forms on the side. And once again, when you stood where you were told to stand based on your height, ta-da! the old man was back up on the mountain. And it wasn't full size, but we held it up like this, and we could see the protrusions on the piece that looked like an inverted hockey stick. Yeah. And we said, hmm, that's, a, that's interesting. If you make a full-size one, will it still be the same? And he said, yes. Yes. And, and we said, well come back with a full-size model. And he said, all right. Two weeks, he came back, and uh, we looked at it, and we said, that's it. <laughs> no question. What they saw was an incredible optical trick. Rather than attach something very large to the very fragile mountainside, you could put something very small, in this case the bumps on the side of a rod, close to your face. And when you lined it up right, he'd be back. The old man's face restored to the slope of Cannon Mountain. When I went down the trail from the museum to the plaza, I sat there for a good long time, just watching people experience this. I was down there for about two hours, and while the plaza was never crowded, I was also never alone, not for more than a moment or two. And so I watched over and over again as people milled about, waiting until the coast was clear, and then stood on a footprint that matched their height and did a little swaying as they lined up their face just so with the mountain. And a second later, the magic of the profilers would click. And then finally, when I was alone for a moment, I allowed myself to have the experience too. I've been here for a while. I'm finally gonna do it. I'm gonna line it up. 
I'm gonna stand in the spot, see if I can. It seems to be working for everyone. The map, they worked out the map, they did a good job. Okay. The, uh, the profilers are unique in that they look like an inverted hockey stick, but when the piece up that's aimed at the old man has all of those little things on it, and we have to put a sign down there to explain it. It basically is a bunch of stones. And when you line it up, bingo, you get the, get the image again. Mimics the experience of what it always yep. was to when it was discovered, which is yep. you have to be in the right place. Right. There it is. It's a little bit of like an optical illusion where you cross your eyes a bit. But it is, it lines up really well. Step back, aha. The true magic of these profilers, what really seals the deal for me, is this. It would have been so easy and so obvious to just put a flat image of the old man's profile on the side of the rod. You'd still get to play the fun game of lining it up with the mountain. What difference would it make? The difference, of course, is that by having the bumps on the side look like nonsense until you stood in precisely the right spot, the profilers honored an important aspect of what made the old man of the mountain iconic going all the way back to its discovery by surveyors in 1805. There wasn't a face hanging off the mountain. There were five large slabs of granite that, from most angles, looked like five slabs of granite. But from one particular spot, it did look like something else. When you stood down at Profile Lake, it transcended granite. Now the granite is gone. The twisted and rusted turnbuckle at the entrance of Profiler Plaza, a tribute to all the work that was done to fight back the old man's earthly problems, is a reminder of what's been lost. But thanks to the Profilers, the transcendence is still there. Big things can come in very small packages. It's a, uh, a low-key, and I, I think from what we hear from people, appropriate um, memorial to the uh, to the old man and uh, allowing the public a chance to see where it was and what he looked like and what's happened i think from that is that everybody that uh, goes up there thinks that that's appropriate that anything more would be too much and uh, i guess we kind of agree with them you know, you know? Uh, now that we've got it done... Uh, uh... There was supposed to be more, it's true. I mentioned earlier that part of the plan was a giant granite sculpture along the path to the lakeside. Five large pieces of granite on the pathway going down. And when you line those up, it would give you the old man image. Each of those stones was going to weigh about 200 tons. And we, there was only one quarry in the uh, eastern United States that could quarry that big a piece of granite, particularly Conway granite. The logistics of trying to do the, what they were proposing were just overwhelming. Uh, there were two bridges that were questionable as to whether or not we could take that weight across that bridge. Um, so we, we basically abandoned that idea because it was going to cost three and a half million to do, and we didn't think we could raise that, okay. that kind of funds. 
which isn't to say the Legacy Fund couldn't raise funds. We have raised a half million in order to do what we've done down there. I didn't, I didn't think we could. <laughs> they did, an effort which is commemorated in Profiler Plaza with hundreds of paving stones. We have 1,200 stones that are engraved that are have been purchased by uh, companies and individuals. I think they're from 21 states and three countries. The one we like the best is the one that says, will you marry me? <laughs> I'm assuming it worked out. Basically. Oh, yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. There are also a few larger donors honored on benches in the plaza. The benches were, were basically sponsored by large corporations, not large. McDonald's. Well, McDonald's was one of them, and they came to us in 2007 and said, we'd like to do something uh, to commemorate the old man of the mountain. And I said, what have you got in mind? And they said, we would like to produce a cup. Dick points to a gargantuan plastic soda cup in a museum display case. In memorializing the old man and telling the story of his collapse and so forth. And for every one of those we sell in New England, we'll give you 25 cents. Hey, that's cool. Deal. (laughs) Yeah, they wrote a check for $128,000. That's when we knew we could do this and it would work. We, you know, they sold 380,000 of those large cups. I mean, people wanted the, they told me that that they never sold more than 100,000 a year. And they sold 375,000, something like that. I said, that's because people wanted to remember and and have, have remembered, so I think Dick calls this out a few times during our chat. How much people, not just in the area, but around the nation and around the world, have supported and been moved by the commemoration of the old man? At one point, he nods to the guest register at the entrance of the museum. We took uh, two years of, of people signing it, and I had a, a volunteer that spent the winter cataloging it, and we, f- we discovered that the visitors were from all 50 states, four Canadian provinces, and 52 countries. So we said, well, you know, there is international interest in, uh, in this natural profile. Dick wants to be sure to highlight this because, and I did not know this when I began speaking with Dick, I learned it right there in the museum. The whole enterprise, the museum, the plaza, is about to have new ownership. And, well, everyone's a bit nervous about whether they'll truly appreciate how important the work the Old Man of the Mountain Legacy Fund has completed has been, up to and including the current work to build two new pathways, one to provide an alternative trail down to the plaza, the other to give fishermen a platform to cast into Profile Lake from. And then when we get all of that done, hopefully by mid-September, we're all done. And uh, the legacy fund will go out of business. Yeah. And basically, we'll we'll have a little ceremony down there, and present. Basically, we leased this property from the state. 
to do what we did down there. And uh, basically, we're going to give it back to them. So at that point, the yeah. plaza and this building will, will uh, go to the state? Yeah, belongs to the it. state. Yeah, it's, we hope. <laughs> so we're very proud of, of uh, what we've done. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen, uh, you know, in the future, but it's up, up to the state. We've spent almost a half million. By the time we get done, we'll, we'll be broke, and uh, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it was for. <laughs> and it, it ends a, a kind of long series of years of, yeah, of, of, yeah. this, of what the fund was. Yeah. I, didn't, I did not realize that it was really kind of, that its life cycle was coming to an end yeah. kind of within this year. Yeah, the, uh, we will go out of business. Uh, we, our contract with the state goes through next December 31st. But we have said, uh, or uh, the, the, the lease says, or when construction is complete of the memorial. Well, we think it'll be complete uh, by uh, November. And, uh, and so we said, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna establish a group, friends of the old man of the mountain and uh, just to keep an eye on the state, make sure they take care of him, you know. <laughs> and we'll raise a few, a few <laughs> shackles. We'll have to talk to his friends. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, we're going to be keeping our eye on him, uh, on the state, and and make make sure uh, that they they tend to business, and in, in you know mow the grass and uh, do the picnic tables. But you think you've proven to them by, by this point that yeah. no, this is still this a place still that people attractive. Come. You know, we think that we've had people uh, count um, visitors, and based upon the counting, the various days, and uh, uh, we think that about thirty-five thousand people come down to see it uh, between Memorial Day and Columbus Day. I'm not too surprised there's some ambivalence at the state level about the old man of the mountain or the place where he was, even as the spot has maintained its status as a popular attraction and its reputation among granite staters as hallowed ground. I started this episode wondering how a group of people hold on to an icon when that icon can no longer be held. And 16 years on from the old man's collapse, the evidence seems to say this group is doing really, really well it still kind of feels like he's there. But it has only been 16 years. What about when it's been 60? Will it still make sense to hold fast to the profile of the old man's face? To keep him on all the road signs when most people won't have been alive when he was around? Hmm? It depends. It depends on what happens next. Whether he's given room to transcend his physical form like he once transcended granite. And it depends if his status as the visual brand of New Hampshire, the state's iconic signature, becomes self-sustaining. Will he get the room to do it? We'll have to wait and see. We hope, we hope the state continues to use the old man as a, as a symbol. There's been some discussion about replacing him, but what you'd replace yeah. him with. 
there's been discussion that uh, Mount Washington might be, or the, the ship MV Mount Washington, which is on Lake Winnipesaukee. But we say, no, 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 no. The old man, even though he's, he's gone, the memory of him lives on. And uh, he should continue to be, because he makes a statement, I think, about the quality of the people in New Hampshire and how they feel about life and, and, uh, and living, and he should stay that way. So far, we've been successful, but, you know, 16 years, yeah. Ooh. Epilogue. The piece Dick Hamilton carries around with him. The Old Man of the Mountain was made up of five pieces, and this episode has been too. But I did want to end by quickly mentioning one more piece of The Old Man. It would have originally been a small chunk of one of those original five parts, but now it stands alone. That's a piece of the old man. This is right here? Yep. Came from his cheek <laughs> on the south side. It's very, it's like very pink. Yes. The Old Man was, is pink, and that's very coarse granite, whereas some granite is very, very hard. Mm. But he almost looks like the old man. <laughs> he See? actually really does, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Soon, Dick Hamilton and the Old Man of the Mountain Legacy Fund will hand over the keys to this place, and something will change. It's tough to know what, and it's tough to know how. But one thing I don't think will change, I hope it won't, is Dick himself. As long as he's in the area, there's a chance you'll run into him in the museum. And if you run into him in the museum, there's a very high chance he'll show you the piece of the old man of the mountain he carries around with him. When Dick is around, the old man isn't gone anymore. He's just very small. But if you're standing in the right place at the right time, you can see him. And that'll do it. Thanks for coming up to Franconia Notch with me. And while we're thanking people, I'd like to thank Carol Zoll for script editing and feedback. And of course, I'm extremely grateful to the Old Man of the Mountain Legacy Fund and to the Old Man of the Mountain himself, Dick Hamilton, for taking the time to talk with me. Iconography is written and produced by me, Charles Gustine. You can hit me up on Twitter at IconographyPod, on Instagram at IconographyPodcast, or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash IconographyPodcast and tell me what you thought of the episode. Whether it's through social media or the website, IconographyPodcast.com, or a review on Apple Podcasts, which I always appreciate. I'd love to hear from you. Iconography is a proud member of Hub & Spoke, a Boston-centric collective of smart, idea-driven podcasts that's growing so fast at this point I can't even keep up with all the announcements. Since my last episode, three shows have joined the collective. 
Radio Open Source, the very first podcast, yes, you heard me, the first, Rumble Strip from Erica Heilman, who invites herself into people's homes to find out what makes them more like you than you'd realize, and Subtitle, a brand new show from Patrick Cox and Kavita Pillay, produced by the Linguistic Society of America. I'll highlight each of these shows in turn over the next few episodes, but today, in the spirit of highlighting stories from the northern climes of New England, I want to recommend an episode of Rumble Strip. In the episode Summer Musical, Erica visits the town of Randolph, Vermont, where the kids are putting on a production of Footloose. In the Xerox room, the actors tell Erica what it means to them to perform, and even do a little performing right there on the spot. The episode is short and it's sweet, and I mean that second part. It is very, very sweet. You can find that episode at rumblestripvermont.com, at hubspokeaudio.org, or anywhere fine podcasts are available.